This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Will Kane, S.E. Cup, R. Kane and Cup, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Good Saturday morning to you. I am Will Kane. I'm S.E. Cup. And we've got a big show today. We, uh, we're going to start out talking about football. But this isn't a sports show. Don't run away. We're not taking prop bets or going over the line for the games tomorrow. We are, as you know, as I'm sure you know, going to be talking about justice, largely. What is justice? Criminal justice. Mob justice. What is just the concept? We're talking about Ray Rice, who's been suspended indefinitely for the video showing him assaulting his wife. But he could come back. He could come back. Roger Goodell says he could come back. We're talking about Roger Goodell. What is the appropriate punishment, or lack thereof, of Roger Goodell? A lot of people this morning, a lot of people calling for Roger Goodell's head. They'd like to see him also receive punishment for this entire incident. And also, Essie, I told you just a moment ago, there's another incident in the past 12 hours going on in the NFL. Is this the um, some kind of child abuse story? That's exactly right. It's Adrian oh. Peterson, largely... Um, Whoa, whoa, Consider- it's Adrian Peterson involved? Yeah. The the best running back in the NFL. Uh, an almost certain Hall of Famer yeah. at this point. I saw I saw a flash on the news this morning. I was watching CNN, and there was a, a flash of a NFL child abuse story. I had no idea involved Adrian Peterson. Adrian Peterson has turned himself in <gasps> in Texas on a uh, grand jury indictment for child abuse. His lawyer right now says the incident is revolving around, and this is what we know so far, him using a switch to discipline his child. What's a switch? It's like a branch broken off a tree. Uh, you, you know, you've seen. Come on. What? You've seen like uh, Andy the Andy Griffith show or something like that. Go get uh, a switch. No. <laughs> You'll break a switch. No, off. Grandpa, <laughs> I haven't. What's a, a switch? Like a bendable yet durable um, branch of a tree that you put could... an odd weapon. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah, the lawyer says as Adrian Peterson grew up being disciplined in East Texas. Um, so that's the defense right now. He was using oh a switch to, uh, to discipline his child. We'll see what more comes of that. But that introduces a whole other concept, you know, uh, the idea of, of parenting and where, where parenting and discipline and justice all collide. I think if there's a theme for the show this morning, Essie, it is justice. What is justice? Later in the show, uh, we'll be talking about um, can parents be held accountable right. for the criminal actions of their children? Right. Should parents be held accountable? Right. Should they be able to be prosecuted criminally for things their children do? There's a law being presented in New Jersey to suggest just that, but that's a little later in the show. As I said, we want to start off today um, talking about justice when it comes to the NFL. Now, I've made this argument, I see this week, and I don't know that I've made it to you just yet, but I believe right now when it comes to Ray Rice or Roger Goodell, the concept of justice is being driven by nothing more than the mob. There is no principle. There is no predicate. There is no rule of law or rule, written rule for the NFL to follow or that they are following when it comes to A, punishing Ray Rice and B, potentially punishing Roger Goodell. And I am terrified by mobs. I I think there's no discounting. There's no arguing that um, the NFL is largely acting now based on pressure from the outside. Absolutely. But... That doesn't mean that the pressure from the outside is unwarranted. The the NFL, I think, largely 
ignored this problem as long as it could. I think the initial two-game suspension for Ray Rice was an abomination. Most people thought that that was um, too short. I remember I was on I was on a, a Sunday show at some point, and and I said, "Well, the lesson here is you can hit your wife and play in the NFL." That's that's the lesson we learned from the two-game suspension. So the NFL has been, I think, slow to act. I don't yet know if the NFL has been negligent if they saw that film. Uh, that that video footage from the elevator and and ignored it or if someone saw it but never got to Roger Goodell's office and so uh, they didn't really know about the extensive clip. That's all semantics to me. They were slow to act. They're acting now because of public pressure. Mm-hmm. While you're right, I'd love it for there to be a set of, of rules in place so that we could know exactly what um, you know the consequences should be for a Ray Rice or a Roger Goodell. I, I'm not um, I'm not all that upset. Oh, but there are that the NFL is now swaying to public pressure. No, see, okay, everything can be valid, and the conclusion can be wrong. It is valid for the public to be outraged. Certainly, nothing in the position I'm taking condones. Ray Rice sure, or sure. condones domestic violence. All I'm asking is that we be rational in our punishment, rational in our condemnation. Because if you don't, you remind me of there was a show on, uh, on the History Channel uh, called Vikings. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It really wasn't that good. <clears throat> no, I had high hopes for it. It was not right. that good. I, like a C plus. Yeah, yeah. It was just in that range where you keep watching and asking yourself why. Right, like, is this going to get better? This has to get better. I'm going to keep watching, right. but it didn't. But, like, the, the, the trial system for the Vikings was the chieftain, the tribal chieftain sitting on his throne while everyone in the village gathered around him, and people made their kind of ad hoc cases, and mm-hmm. he just arbitrarily goes, death! Right. You know? <laughs> and everybody's like, well, he spoke. I mean, that must be justice. Right. So the mob can be outraged. What Ray Rice did is wrong, but you have to follow principles or rules or predicates and what i'm telling you is this this isn't the first domestic violence case come on that's 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 why it's not the first in fact there's two other guys right now under investigation but that that goes to my argument why is (laughs) i mean that's exactly right this is not the first time the nfl should take this more seriously this is a bigger indictment on the nfl than just ray rice the nfl should be a lot more concerned about this issue than it is fine and roger goodell should be culpable. But wait, first with Ray Rice, then Roger Goodell. Okay. You have to follow precedent. And precedent is that this 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 type of incident has been punishable somewhere between two and three games. Now, um, whether not that's right or wrong, that's the precedent. 538, uh, Nate Silver's website, yeah. compiled these charges over time. They're the best. They've done the best of anyone of yeah. finding out what's what's been the precedent. What's the standard? And the point is, this goes far and above anything they've ever done. But, Will, we have a video. I'm not disagreeing with you, but I bet on a lot of those other cases, we didn't have an inside look at what domestic abuse looks like. But things that happen on video... this was horrific. But things that happen on video aren't worse than things that don't happen on video. I, I don't disagree. I'm explaining why the public outcry over this has probably been higher right. than for all of those incidents in the past where all you see is a police report. And all I'm saying is the public doesn't get to demand the concept of justice. They don't get to define it. If they'd say- Actually, the public does. When the public is the one who makes the uh, product that you are creating uh, profitable and viable, the public actually does have a say. Not, not, that that not- would justify any punishment. 
If well, the public well, outrage no, said a free market, Ray Rice Will. needs to lose a hand, like in the Islamic Society for stealing, sure. the punishment for this should Ray Rice should should, should lose a hand. If yeah. he goes, whoa, that's a little extreme, you could make the same argument. Well, the public has defined as a business product what this should be, so the NFL has to live up yeah. to it. Well, well, they don't have to, of course. That's that's absurd. But if the NFL wants to continue to be a viable business, if the NFL wants to continue to please its fans, then the NFL will absolutely listen to. The public. Listen. And part of the argument has been that the public has been largely males. It's a male fan base. It's a male organization. It's a male sport. And so there hasn't been this public outcry because most men don't care in the same way that maybe okay. women would. You and I sat on these microphones a few months ago and talked about the Donald Sterling incident in yeah, the NBA. Right. And both said, while Donald Sterling was abhorrent, what he said was terrible, mm-hmm. the punishment ultimately inflicted was unjust. It I, was I agree. He didn't, he, was, he didn't hit anyone. His property was taken away from him. But yeah. the point is, the argument at that time was made, well, the NBA is a product, and they have to do what's best for the NBA. And in this case, it's taking it away from Donald J- Sterling. And you and I said, that is unjust. The point is I'm making here is, yes, Ray Rice was wrong. Yes, it hurts the NFL, but the punishment still must fit the crime. It must be just. If you take this in any other industry, a bricklayer, he doesn't get his job taken away. His job, yes, he can be fired. He doesn't get banned from the industry. So the Ravens can fire Ray Rice, but it's unjust to say this guy is done in the NFL because we don't do that with anything else. No other incident in domestic violence in this society is that the precedent and I'm just saying the mob is dictating an unjust punishment. Well, I see some differences between the Sterling case and the Goodell case. I want to keep talking about this, but I also want to bring in, we have Jay Feely here. He's an NFL kicker in studio oh. to talk about this. And You brought uh, in a, um, an actual athlete. Maybe. Well, yeah, I brought think in, he's gonna I, I, I would call him an expert, an expert on this. this Remember how last week we, we argued about your undershirt mm-hmm. and whether that was appropriate office attire? We mm-hmm. brought in an expert from a men's clothing store who agreed with me uh-huh. that it was not appropriate uh-huh. office wear. Uh-huh. We're going to have an wrong, expert. expert. We're going to have an expert come in today. NFL kicker Jay Feely. Stick around. Kane and Cup coming up next. Will Kane and Desi Cup will continue in a moment on the Blaze Radio Network. Kane and Cup returns now. This is SE Cup. Will Kane. You, you have to understand we have another person in our studio right now. Um, so we were just we were just chatting. We're on the air right now? Got a little <laughs> This is uh this is like that Ron Burgie moment. I don't believe you. I don't believe you. Luckily, luckily we, <laughs> we didn't San Diego. We, <laughs> did, <laughs> we didn't say anything um uncouth. We're welcomed in studio 
by Jay Feely. He's an NFL kicker. He's also on the executive committee with the Players Association, so he's got a good working relationship with Roger Goodell, and he's been part of um, a, a number of sort of the big decision-making uh, moments over the past few years. So we're, we're lucky to have his take. Jay, um, obviously you've been watching this closely. Tell me first, let's separate. Will likes to separate these arguments out because um, he's got a lawyer's mind. Some call it anal retentive. He's, he's got a lawyer's mind. I, I got mind. a little anal retentiveness in would me. You guys, would, you, would you guys quit saying that word? <laughs> uh, oh, suddenly you're a prude. Okay. <laughs> we'll see how long that lasts. Um, let's separate this out. Let's first talk about Ray Rice. Okay. What should happen to Ray Rice? Will thinks that the... Um, you know, there's the sort of like a bounty on his head now. Well, let, let's talk Ray Rice and his wife, Janae, first. Great. Hopefully they go and they get counseling and they work it out because they're trying to work it out as a couple. And obviously nobody condones his actions and his behavior. And what he did was abhorrent. And, you know, he is paying the penalty for that. He lost his job and uh, he's been publicly scorned and he'll never be able to get his reputation back. Should he be allowed to play again eventually? I, I will, I'll ask you this. Josh Brent is going to be eligible to play in a few weeks. He killed his teammate last year while drunk driving. Dante Stallworth was down in Miami, killed a man while drunk driving. He came back and played. Leonard Little did the same thing and came back and played. So Michael Vick. Michael, Michael Vick with the dogfight. But we're talking about three people who lost their lives yeah. as a result of somebody doing a DUI, and they came back and played. So is there a time that I think Ray Rice may get an opportunity to come back? Possibly. You know, but that doesn't condone the behavior. No, you, and you know what, Jay, I think you've, you've made that, and it's, it's a shame that we keep having to make that caveat, that if you make any intellectual argument that somehow you have to defend yourself from the idea that you're condoning Ray Rice's right. behavior. I made the argument, I don't know if you could hear when you were outside the studio. I, I was listening. That, uh, that I think it's, it's overboard. It's, a, it's an overboard reaction to public reaction, and you don't get, you don't get uh, dispelled, banned from any profession for this crime. The crime is horrible. I have to do the same ca- caveats. I don't condone it. It's a horrible crime. But you also have to follow precedent. So you said that Ray Rice probably will come back. Should Ray Rice be allowed to come back? Well, that's a, you know, that's a different question because it is, it is a blessing to be able to play in the NFL. It's a gift to be able to play in a the privilege. NFL. A privilege that can be taken away. You know, but when you look at statistics, you're talking about 538. I thought they did a great job because they went through the NFL and I had a, I had a, a a bar graph that they put out that was great that showed the percentage of at the average American American in the age demographic that most NFL players are between 25 and 30 in the same income level. And they went through all the different uh, crimes that people commit and w- whether or not an NFL player was more likely or less likely than the average person. A quarter of the DUIs for the uh, NFL players, mm. an eighth of drug-related arrests, half of domestic violence, half sex offense, half gun-related. So mm. the NFL players less likely than the average person at their same age demographic to get in trouble in all those categories, and yet we know about it because they're a star player and because the media makes a big deal That's out a of fast, it. Yeah, and they're going to be punished much greater than the average the person who, who would but do that the same goes, thing. I mean, that goes exactly to your point, Correct. Will, because when the public reacts this way, it has the effect of creating this idea that this population of people are somehow more... Thugs, uh, criminals. Thugs and criminals. And look, you can say that, uh, as Jay said, playing in the NFL is a privilege, and so maybe you should be held to a higher standard than the and average I, population. And I do believe that. Right. I do believe that. Because right. we are role models, because we are in the public eye. And the one thing, good thing that can come out of this is that you take a, a spotlight and you shine it on the problem of domestic violence, yeah. and hopefully we make changes. And hopefully it'll have an impact on society 
as a whole because we're more uh, attuned to this problem. But this gets me to Roger Goodell. Does suspending Ray Rice for two games really shine a spotlight on domestic abuse? Was that a missed opportunity? Did Roger Goodell just get that wrong? Well, I think he got it wrong originally, you know, when he just suspended him for two games. And I think probably what they did was not look into it as deep as they should. But, he, yeah. but, but the conversation we're having is that he's also getting it wrong now. The indefinite suspension. So the two-game suspension is wrong, and the indefinite suspension is wrong. He, doesn't, he hasn't seemed to have gotten it right, to me at least, So, Will, the indefinite at any suspension, point. to me, is, is them just kind of kicking it down the road. The, the, so like, is that let, just a hands up? I don't yeah, know the right thing to do right now? Yeah, and, and I, I want to get the public off my back, so I'm going to wow. give them an indefinite yeah. suspension, and then I'll revisit that at a later time. Because we have a CBA, and obviously he has to follow the CBA. Right. That's the and written so, rules. And he himself. Collective bargaining after, agreement for people who correct, don't. Correct. Yep. Correct. Which dictates all the rules and regulations. We just right. did a whole new drug policy that went through and dictated all the penalties and, and what you can and can't do and just negotiated that as well. But in, in regard to Ray Rice, he laid out after the Ray Rice penalty what the new domestic violence policy. It says in his own policy that Roger Goodell laid out. First defense would be six-game suspension, which is a big suspension, which is almost half of the season. Sure, yeah. Right? You're taking away half of a person's income and saying that they can't be there for half of the year. And, and, and I think that that's probably an appropriate mm-hmm. penalty. That's a big penalty, but you're, you're saying we're not going to accept dom- domestic violence. So by saying we're going to give him an indefinite suspension, he, by rule, didn't follow his own policy that he just laid out after the Ray Rice. So ro- should Roger Goodell go? No, I don't think so at all. Okay. And, and, and it would be very easy for me to stand here and to jump up, on to- uh, jump up and down on top of Roger Goodell and, and beat him down. I've sat on the other side of the negotiating table, and he and I have fought many times. And, yeah. You know, we were with the, when I was with the Jets, he came in during the lockout and, and talked to every team, and it was very contentious and – I wouldn't let him. If I disagree with him, I was hammering him. And yeah, but it'd be it'd be hard for you also right now to say he has to go. Well, I mean, at one point you haven't said, quite yet retired. <laughs> no, I haven't. So, <laughs> I haven't. Has any but, player said Roger Goodell must go? Well, oh, many of them have. Oh, yeah. Many oh, of them yeah. have. Oh. Look, when when the bounty scandal happened with the right. New Orleans Saints, and and Roger Goodell was found to be in error. He, they got Paul Tagliabue, who was a former commissioner, brought him mm-hmm. in. He was the independent investigator. He went and removed all the suspensions on the players that Roger Goodell had implemented and said, no, that those were wrong. That probably undermined any trust that well, NFL th- players yeah, had in Roger Goodell. The whole point Roger Goodell was making at the time was ignorance isn't an excuse. Correct. And now he's making a similar excuse to a lot of players felt like, who are you, hypocrite? To to but I but I would say in defense of Roger Goodell, he didn't do anything wrong here. Ray Rice is the person who did something wrong. He mishandled the situation. He probably didn't look into it as deep as he should. If he saw okay. that film, Jay. If he saw the film, he needs to get fired. Okay, I think we just came. We just yeah. reached because the he, bottom of this because he lied about it. It's, right. It would be his Nixon moment. I think you're right because the cr- the cover up would be worse than the. Crime. I think you're right, and and you ha- as as a public. You have to have trust in the commissioner of the NFL and the integrity of the game. Yes. And if you can't trust him, if he came out and he lied to the public right. and said, I know I never saw that film, and then he did, well, then he would have to go. And I think NFL owners in general then yeah. would allow would would want him to go there. Let's, let's I this. think you're right. I want to take a quick break. And then we have some questions about shower etiquette. And I think a man that showers with uh, 30 other guys, is no one. there's no one better on shower etiquette and by the way as a small white man, man it's very intimidating to shower <laughs> with like 50 other men I cannot <laughs> wait to come back from this break that and I want to ask Jay Jay I want to know about that moment when uh, 
there's 10 seconds left on the clock and you've just missed about a 35, 40 yard field goal when you walk back to the sidelines, the reaction you get from your teammates. I want to, I want to be in your head. In That's that never moment. happened to me. I don't when know. When we come back, about. when we come back on Kane and Cup. This is Kane and Cup, part of the next generation of talk radio on the Blaze Radio Network. Kane and Cup return. Welcome back to Kane and Cup. I'm Cup, joined by Will Kane. And in studio, we have NFL kicker Jay Feely. We're just going to take advantage of this situation. Will and I often have conversations about what's right, what's appropriate, what's socially unacceptable. <laughs> Will seems to always be on the outside of those conversations and not know what's socially unacceptable. You're educating him? <laughs> I'm educating him. <laughs> and luckily, we have great um, callers who call in to agree with me. For the most part. So we're lucky. We're going to bring you into this, whether you like it or not. <laughs> and the, the, the topic today is shower etiquette. Can I just start? I didn't pull, I didn't pull a clip today. I mean, but are I we just talking at home? Are we talking at the gym? Are we talking in the well, locker room? Right. So there's, there's, a, a, lot there's a lot of different places. You're right. You're right. I just want to say this reminds me of the Seinfeld, where I usually have clips of Seinfeld, but I didn't get one. The last shrinkage? Time. No, oh, oh, I but thought you were talking about a shower. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, where George is caught um, urinating <laughs> in the shower at the gym. Oh, that's perfect. Give me the mic. <laughs> See, they take the mic away from me so I can't say anything. So this is a survey by YouGov. Uh, YouGov Omnibus Survey. How often do you pee in the shower? Now. Oh, it's not even like do you. It's how often? Um. Yeah, <laughs> never is not an option on here. <laughs> I saw on Reddit there are two different types of men in the world, those that pee in the shower and those that are horrible liars. <laughs> so we'll start with question number one. First, do you and uh, and how often? By the way, we will bring you in as well, 888-900-3393. We'll start with this. We have several different etiquette, shower etiquette questions to ask. How often do you pee in the shower, Jay Feely? <laughs> uh, you know, occasionally. Uh, yeah, I would, you know, not when somebody's around. <laughs> so with that, there are four options on this survey. Uh, I have only done this once or twice. No, that's not true. <laughs> Some of the time. That's that's the answer. Most of the time. No. Every time. <laughs> it's not part of your morning routine. Like I'll forget the trip to the to the toilet. I'm going in the shower. <laughs> I'll just combine the two. Yeah, see, I'm in the I'm in the category. I would be somebody they would say is a horrible liar. I'm in the. Uh, I've only done this once or twice. You liar. I don't do this, man. <laughs> I will cop to many horrible The hot things. water. You're by yourself. <laughs> hot water. Of course you do. Look, I will, I, I will admit as well, that has happened. Oh, <laughs> Nobody wants to know that. Nobody wants to know that. But it happens. I just can't believe. What I don't like is when you're standing in the shower with like, 40 guys, and there's like four or five of them just peeing. Oh, I hate when no that problem. happens. Oh, really? And you're watching like the yellow pee just run by you, no. you know, in the drain, and you're like, come on, And dude. if you say come on, is it oh, like... Oh, no, absolutely say come on, And dude. Is you're actually lighten up, what? man. Yeah, Everybody yeah, does yeah, it. exactly. <laughs> well, the, the argument that, that George made in Seinfeld is that it's a drain. All the pipes go to the same place. Right. Is this the justification that it doesn't, it doesn't really matter? 
I think there is no justification. I'm looking at you men because I think this is more of a male phenomenon. It is not. Yes, it is. You guys are just too embarrassed to admit it. No, we're not used to peeing standing up. It's just not normal. It's not (laughs) SOP for us. It's SOP for you guys. So it's special for you when you get to do it in the shower. (laughs) It's a treat. When I go hunting and I get to do this in the woods, it's a treat. I think the argument is less about the drains and it's you are instantly clean the moment after you do it. So what's the big deal? I just washed. I mean, there was no moment of dirtiness. Well, here's why I don't actually, I'm not all that offended by it. The stuff that comes off your body in the shower is just as gross and dirty. I mean, you're in there to get clean because you're dirty. So there's dirt coming off you. There's body odor. There's all kinds of stuff coming off you. What's a little urine? Well, I mean, again, are you talking about at home or are you talking about in a in public In front of shower? other people. <laughs> because I no one else right. wants your pee all over the floor where they're going to walk. Clearly. No, know? they don't. <laughs> no, they don't. Okay, I have another one for you guys. And this is definitely for you guys because... I, I really only know men who do this. Why must you blow your nose in the shower? Why is that a thing? Do you blow your nose in the shower, Jen? Uh, not on a regular basis. I may have done that. I don't know. But I think it's cleaning yourself again. You're in there. You're getting everything clean. Why not clean up? Now, this one I can speak to as an expert because I'm a 10 out of 10. 100 out of 100 <laughs> showers, I blow my nose in the shower. What? It has a steam bath effect. Things are loosening up. You want to get, and plus, you can't reach out and grab the toilet paper, which would disintegrate in your wet hand. So you're like, the same rationale as the as the peeing in the shower occurs. You're like, I'm going to blow my nose. I'm going to wash it down the drain. It's all going to happen right here. It's be very clean and refreshing. It's all going to happen right here. Well, I always have to. I hear my husband doing it in the morning because it's loud. That's it's lovely. like a foghorn. <laughs> and so I know, oh, that's great. That's nice. So I know when to when to look for for boogers when I walk into the shower. Why must I have to look for boogers? Why can't you blow your nose before you get in or after you get in? It should go down the drain. Yeah. All right, here's one. Now, Jay, we were just talking. You have how how many kids? Four. I have two. Now, this one's a little... (laughs) And three girls and a boy. When, at what age, do you stop sharing the shower with your child? You take your kid. Look, we all know. Uh, I'm gonna. I'm just gonna Good take. Uh, I'm gonna take them in the shower with me, and we're all we'll take. I love to do that when they were babies. When they were infants. right, I did. I love to hold them. And then one day you look up and you go, "This is highly inappropriate." <laughs> <laughs> How? When is that day? Is it when they're eye to eye, eye to eye to genitals? <laughs> I was gonna say, <laughs> it's eye, to eye to eye. It's you're way past. Definitely not eye to eye. I mean, we I need mean, to educate is it, you here. Is it, is it eye to genitals? I, I feel like that would be that might be the cutoff when they're eye to eye. <laughs> well, no, my son. Like I'll take him in the sauna. Like he and I go take a sauna in the summer. And how old is and, your son? My son is eleven. All right. You mm-hmm. know, and we'll go work out and. And we go in the sauna and sit in there and talk. and. But you don't shower with them. Well, I mean, there's a shower in there, so you take a shower. Communal shower. Yeah. I'm talking it's about guys. I'm, I'm talking but now about with, with my head. girls, <laughs> with my girls, it was, it was very young because I just didn't feel it was appropriate. But, but okay, you, you copped out with the communal shower. I'm talking about the one shower head experience. Come on, let's go. Let's get this done real fast. <laughs> Early on. It was very early you know for why? me. This is the male version of the breastfeeding conversation. Like how old is too old? Like when, when they can ask for it verbally? Can, exactly. When they can when ask like, Mom, for I'd it. Mom, I like some milk. Yeah, they're too old. They're too <laughs> when they're cutting their steak. No, I do really remember my daughter. I think she was like thirteen months and she was like, Ma! Ma! We're like, all right, that's it. We gotta You're cut done. this off. Yeah. <laughs> this is embarrassing. Here's one for you guys. Um, and this one isn't is, isn't uh, I think controversial. Are you a, a forward facer or a, or a backward facer towards the shower head? 
I got the overhead shower head. So oh, <laughs> fancy people. I'm a I'm a backward facer. I want it on the on the back of my shoulders. I don't I don't I don't turn to face the shower. That's not interesting at all, <laughs> or controversial. Um, we've got a caller. I think. Uh, oh, I, this is this is strange. We have a call screen that explains what our callers want to know. And Mark in Maryland says, Essie, do you still beat your husband with a switch? I'd love to hear where this is going. Mark in Maryland, what the hell are you talking about, dude? If you're still beating your husband with a switch, that would then answer the question, do, do people still tinkle in the shower? Uh, how what? you answer the question determines how, you know, if somebody is actually telling the truth or maybe misleading you slightly. I just learned what a switch was today. I don't beat my husband with a switch or anything else. Mark, Mark. <laughs> oh, well, it, it, uh, what classifies as a switch, it can't be no thicker than your pinky. Oh. I think I've heard that before now that you said that, Mark. Mark, do you pee in the shower? Um, to be honest, uh, sometimes I can't quite get out of there in time. <laughs> <laughs> That's a yes. It's a time management issue. Okay, thanks, Mark, I think. Uh, I like I like that. It's a time management issue, which brings me to another Seinfeld when Kramer had to cut down from his 40 minute shower to a seven minute shower and he had to figure out what he could lose, what steps in the process he could lose. He ended up making salads in the shower. <laughs> one of my one of my greatest disappointments, though, is that as I got older and now in the locker room at age 38. Most of my teammates have no idea when I make Seinfeld references. Oh, that's they don't so know what I'm sad. talking about. They don't know the show. Jay, they have can I, no idea. Can I tell you? Last weekend, we we had the best. I I went to Twitter and I asked people to name their boat after a Seinfeld reference. Right. We got like the best. Mine would be shrinkage, no question. So good. That's perfect. <laughs> Mine was real and spectacular. R E E L. Jay, you and I, uh, we were just talking about this, having a mutual friend, uh, Larry Izzo, played with you on the Jets. He said that. He said, you know, guys like Mark Sanchez all of a sudden were on the team. They had a completely different sense of humor, different movie references. That's when you realize there's been a massive generation (laughs) shift. One of my greatest joys is Seinfeld references. You know, and so when you can't share that with your friends and you can't share that with these guys, it just took took part of the joy of life out in the locker room. All right, so I, I teased this. And I, I really do want to know. You've missed a game-winning kick, yes? I have, yeah. When I was with the Giants, actually, I missed three game-winning kicks in the same game. Oh, in the and, same game? In the same oh. game. And uh, so I, I, we fly back. We were in Seattle. It was a big game. It was for first place uh, at home field advantage. And I missed a game win at the end. And then two in overtime. Oh. Worst game of my career. And it was, it was crazy. At that point in the season, I was leading the NFL in every category. I'd had the best year of my career up until that game. And I come back, and I know now, like, my job's on the line. And the New York, I mean, obviously right. here in New York, I'm on the cover of every oh, newspaper. Yeah. And that's all they're talking about all week. And then Saturday Night Live does a spoof about me oh. without me knowing. It was Dane Cook played me. It was a Jay Feely story, the long oh, ride the home. the long ride home. I remember, like, about the plane <laughs> about ride the home. About the plane ride home. So then I get, like, 100 text messages. Like, dude, they're killing you on Saturday Night Live right now. <laughs> and, and I'm trying to get ready for the next game. And, of course, that game goes to overtime as well. And I have another game-winning kick. And? And we're in Philadelphia. Oh. And they call timeout. To try and ice me, and they play a montage of my misses oh. on the jumbotron during the timeout. And well, I still kept my job, so obviously I made the kick made and, the kick. and moved forward. <laughs> now here's the point: this this is really interesting, actually, and and it, it holds true for sports and it does for life in general. Obviously, my career was on the line at that point. I knew that if I missed this kick, 
I'm going to lose my job and probably be out of the NFL. This moment, right here. You're right. walking out. But you can't to, let your mind wander. To the you can't mark. think about the implications of what you're doing. Okay. You can't allow your mind to think about, if I miss this kick, then this is going to happen. You have to keep it disciplined. And I always tell young kids, you have to occupy your mind in those moments. Uh-huh. So if you don't occupy it, it's going to wander to all those things. I'm going to look up at the Jumbotron and think about it. So I just occupied it with the thoughts the, about the, the focus of what I wanted right then, the fundamentals keeping my head down, locking my ankle. But to be great in life, you have to not fear failure. Right. Right, whether it's in radio, on TV, in business, in sports. If you fear failure, when those big moments come up, you're going to pull back and you're not going to take the chance because you're scared that you're going to fail. I 100% agree. It's a great lesson. Because I failed as big as I failed in the Seattle game and got crushed and was able to overcome it and, and continue to go on, it took away some of that fear of failure. My career after that Seattle game was much better than before that Seattle game. And I think it's because I went through that failure and it didn't break me. And then going forward, I could always look back to that and say, well, listen, I failed as bad and as big as I could fail, and it didn't break me. And so it allowed me to be a much better player going forward. we got to take a break. Have you ever gotten the yips? No. Not, Never had the yips? No, not in football. No tin cup moment? <laughs> no. <laughs> All right. On the golf course, yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, Jay, we appreciate you joining us today. This has been a fun conversation on, uh, on multiple levels. Uh, and, and oh, yeah, I learned a lot. Thank you. <laughs> I know a lot more about Jay. <laughs> All right, we'll be back in just a moment on Kane and Cup. This is Kane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network. Well, that was fun. That was fun. Jay Feely in the studio for the last 30 minutes. He is an NFL kicker, has been with several teams, told us stories about his days with the Giants and the Jets. You can follow him on Twitter, at Jay Feely. That's J-A-Y-F-E-E-L-Y. And I think he's got an awesome message on the fear of failure and success. Yeah, he's a good guy. He actually, he does Hannity a lot. He's into politics. Um, you should follow him on Twitter. I think you'd like it. Lisa on Twitter says, if a man doesn't pee in the shower, he is a big, fat liar. Zach Goodbody says, I've heard, and I read this, by the way, I see as well, I've heard urine helps athletes' foot. Scientific study to support this? Question mark? Well, Hashtag curious. It does. The, the uh, I don't know if it's vinegar or something in, in urine. Mm-hmm. Uh, some kind of substance helps, like if you get stung by a jellyfish. Mm-hmm. You're supposed to pee on yourself, mm-hmm. and it helps with the pain. I want to see a study on that. <laughs> Paul O'Donnell says, okay, let me see if I'm on the right track here, Will Kane. Uh, because the NFL has not punished its criminals in the past, there is no precedent. Is that it? The, no. There is a precedent. It has punished its criminals in the past. There is data to show what they did in various situations, including domestic violence. This isn't the first time. My point is you have video evidence. That doesn't make it worse because things that happen and that aren't recorded, are also bad, just as bad, and you follow precedent. If you're not going to follow precedent, make a rational argument. Don't just respond to the mob. Don't just respond to the crowd. In the end, all I'm indicting is the process through which you arrive at justice. And don't just be a a limbing to the mob's outrage. Show your rationale. But, uh, you know, I think, again, there's... It, I, I'm with you. I hate mob outrage and mob justice. But at the same time, p- 
public pressure sometimes is needed to move a conversation along. And I think your examples of the fact that the NFL has had to deal with domestic violence in the past multiple times is proof that maybe the NFL needs to take this more seriously and set a better example. Well, when we come back and just uh, after the break, we're going to talk about some controversial statements, I think, from both Michael Moore, from Bill Nye, and we want to hear oh, if guys. you have a million-dollar idea. You've been sitting on one. You got one that you think is the one that really is going to put you over the top, that no one has yet broken through with. We want to hear from your, from you, your idea. 888-900-3393. Be back in a moment. You're listening to Kane and Cobb. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. Will Kane, S.E. Cup, R. Kane and Cup. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to Kane and Cup. I'm Essie Cup, and I'm Will Kane. Um, so everyone has that moment where you think, "Oh, I've got a million dollar idea. This thing that I just thought that I just invented in my head. This thing could change the world. Could solve a big problem." Most of us don't ever do anything about it. I've been trying to come up with a million dollar idea because, um, frankly, the money would be a lot more reliable than the money in this job. And it'd be nice to have make any sense. A, a fallback. It'd be nice to have a fallback. Like, um, well, yeah, I do this for a living, but also I hold the patent on this like million dollar idea. It's horrible analysis. What are you talking about? <laughs> the the income, the revenue stream on my non-existent dream job would be way more reliable than this. No, if I could That's come up with... That's kind of implied in your million-dollar idea. No, no, no. If I could come up with the million-dollar idea, and it was a guaranteed million-dollar idea... Then, yeah, it would be more reliable. Right, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so stupid. No, it's not. That's what I want. And I've had this conversation with um, our producer over at Real News, Nikki Rizzuto, for years. Years. Nikki. Help me come up with a million dollar idea. We have thought of like branding ideas. We've just thought of off the wall things, political ideas, products to sell. So our production assistant Kevin came in the other day, and we found out he has a fascinating. Um, he has a fascinating hobby: making soap, like Tyler Durden in Fight Club or something. Uh, and, yeah, it was odd and admirable. And I was like, "That's awesome. That's kind of awesome that you make soap." And yeah, he said that he started in college to make like side money. He started making soap and selling it on eBay. He said the margins are crazy. Um, <laughs> and you know, I have a fascination with soap. Yeah, this is also another weird thing that our audience, I don't know, maybe doesn't need to know about you, but I'm going to tell them anyway. I'm walking out of the studio one morning with Will Kane after the show and we're here in New York and occasionally there are these street fairs where they shut down the street and sell crap. I mean, literally crap. Not all crap. It's crap. I avoid them. Will gets real excited when he sees this. Oh, oh, there's my soap guy. I nearly <laughs> tripped. What? My soap guy is here. Come over. Let's go look at this soap. This, this guy sells the best soap. <laughs> what? What's happening right now, undershirt guy? This is a guy. Will Kane is a guy who will wear an undershirt to work. Beer is Bud Budweiser. That's it. That's as sophisticated as Will Kane gets. Not a connoisseur about, of very many things. About most things. 
but he's got a real particular sensibility when it comes to soaps. That's a fact. And so he found this street vendor. Makes a nice soap. <laughs> makes a soap that he loves. It's so weird and out of character. So and good. Unexpected. It's good though, right? You liked it. It was good. I don't know. It smelled fine. You, you Whatever. Know it smelled good. I don't like the uh, the 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 anesthetic hospitaly uh, mass produced soap smell. I don't like the scum it leaves on you. I, d- don't come with me with your Dove with your Irish Spring. I don't, I don't want anything to do with that. I want a nice, you know, oil based. Wow. <laughs> fallish smelling soap, man soap. And I've tried all that Axe and Old Spice. Nah, then do it. I know you're kind of going for a man thing. You still smell like um, a chemical. Huh. Don't like it. Anyway, well, it was a, we turned a, Kevin's soap idea into a million-dollar idea. That's the point. For me. If you could cu- customize soap, Matthew McConaughey soap, soap that gets you clean but doesn't take away your funk. Yeah. You you, know? <laughs> that's your a million-dollar idea. <laughs> right. So I was thinking, because after we talked to Kevin about how to monetize his soap business— um, I was thinking, what other million dollar ideas could we just come up with? We're a couple creative people. We've got access to this vast audience of Canaan Cup listeners mm. who are smart and creative. I bet someone out there is sitting on a million dollar idea. Now, this isn't Shark Tank. I'm not funding your idea. Don't get excited. If you call in with an awesome idea, I'm not going to like make it happen for you. But I will um, give you a platform for it. We'll talk about it. We'll say, good idea. So, <laughs> do you have a million-dollar idea, Brian, in New York? Hey, how's it going? Good. Okay, so, um, oh, first off, I want to say thank you guys for supporting uh, gay marriage. But, yes, I do have an idea um, that was inspired by two of my friends. So, basically, um, recently one of my friends was diagnosed with epilepsy, and she now has to take two pills a day every day. Mm. Um, she actually sets alarms for 8 a.m. and 8 p.m. because she's terrified if she takes it at the wrong time, it's you know going to mess something up. And then um, my other friend, who has the Implanon birth control a uh, birth control rod, which is implanted right under her skin in her arm, which lasts for three years. Um, so I thought, why do they not have more implantable medications, especially if you know the dosage is going to be the same indefinitely? So I was thinking whether it's epilepsy or bipolar disorder. Mm. Um, other certain conditions. So I'm wondering if the pharmaceutical companies feel that, you know, their returns on that investment. Right. You just answered uh, your own question. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, So I think we need, you know, I'm actually applying to business school now for next year. So if I do try to do a startup thing, okay, try to make a small pharmaceutical company that would then eventually just get bought out because they would feel threatened (laughs) if we only focus on implantables. Brian, I like it. Really good. You know, I'm not, um, as Will will always point out, I'm not a scientist. I don't know anything about science. Thank you for that. But I would be willing to guess that part of it is also that the implantable, for example, the implantable birth control device, that's a hormone release, which is probably a little different than a drug release. Um, but yeah, and there's I don't probably know. some danger in in implanting like a severe overdosage to be mm-hmm. time released. I mean, it, a slight I don't mis- know. a slight mistake there could be horrible med mal. Yeah, although I mean, to Brian's to to Brian's credit or defense, um, there are like time elapsed drugs like um, Ambien, like Ambien, like a Claritin, you know, mm-hmm. which is like a twelve hour, twenty four hour, and it releases over time. So, I don't know. Maybe not that far off, Brian. That's a pretty good idea. Nice, Brian. Good well, luck with that in med school. Or business, business school. school. Business yeah. school. 
On that Brian. topic, by the way. Wait, I have another one. I have well, another hold idea. on before we get too far afield from the medical field. Why do we not have a cure for baldness? This is not a million-dollar idea. This is a trillion-dollar idea. They did a whole movie about it, that movie with Clive Owen and Julia Roberts, the, um, where they're corporate spies. Well, duplicity. Hmm. And they are corporate spies working for two corporations coming up for the cure for baldness. And, it, and they, they joke in there, but this is the holy grail. That is the trillion-dollar idea. And I just don't understand. We're doing amazing things medically, mm-hmm. amazing things. Mm-hmm. Why, why don't we have a cure for baldness? This sure, doesn't seem sure. that complicated. Yeah. This is not that complicated. Well, you know who's with you? George Costanza. Right. Um, I got another idea from Twitter from Arlington Steve on Twitter. I would like, this is not his, I mean, he has not come up with a way to make this happen, but here's what he would like. I would like self-sterilizing doorknobs. You know, either Arlington <laughs> Steve is a germaphobe or he's a parent. And I bet I love this idea, and I would bet you that there is a material, some kind of, I don't know, stainless steel or or some kind of material that already is self-sterilizing. Imagine not having to go around your house with, you know, the Clorox wipes and wiping down all your doorknobs and light switches and everything, you know, toilet handles, everything that everyone touches every day. Imagine the subway. Imagine public stair rails made with self-sterilizing material. Imagine the public health problem. How would you do problem that? How do you self-sterilize? That you could solve. I'm telling you, I bet there is a material out there. Maybe in the rainforest of the Amazon, <laughs> or maybe we've already. Uh, maybe the military has this material. I bet you there's a material that is immune to like germ. Germs affixing to it. Can't, you, you can't affix germs to this material. You're smiling as you talk because you know this is absurd. Well, because I'm not science. I don't know science, but I bet the science exists where we could ha- where there is a material that is resistant to germs. And imagine that solving a huge public health crisis, which that, is the spread of germs. That is a little bit like my hair loss just because you didn't think of it doesn't make it a bad idea. You no, know, you've you've explained a market demand, but not a million dollar idea. I don't have just the, like just like my hair solution. loss, right? Spiel. The difference between us is I will try and fill in the blank, <laughs> even though I don't have the solution. I'll try to make one up. You won't. <laughs> well, on the topic of science, um, you don't know science. I want people to keep calling in, by the way, with their million dollar ideas. Yeah, or tweet at Will Kane at yeah. SC Cup. We want to know your million dollar idea. Uh, but on the topic of science, you know, Essie, I think, mm. is very candid about the fact that she's not science. I don't <laughs> I'm not science. She doesn't know science? No. I have some questions about whether or not Bill Nye knows science, because if you can't understand simple logic, it seems like a rudimentary. Bill Nye has also told me that I don't know science. To logic, my face. Logic, evidence, <laughs> understanding the other side of an argument. Those are rudimentary steps in, uh, I think, in science. Bill Nye can't uh, quite get his arms around it when we come back on Kane and Cup. This is Kane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network.
Can I just say, Jose, our board operator, just brought me a piece of literature, a piece of science. A piece of literature. <laughs> a piece of scholarship. New subway poles to get germ-killing jackets. This is 2006. In case they get cold. <laughs> this is out of Canada, I believe. So take it with a grain of salt. No. Uh, look, this this technology I just invented in my head already exists. These subway poles are getting germ-killing jackets in Canada. I think we can solve this problem. I think we've clearly identified a problem and already people are trying to work on it. So it's not that far-fetched. However, mm. I definitely don't know science. I'm open and honest about not knowing science. I put math in that category as well. I can barely calculate the tip on a restaurant bill. I'm not ashamed of this. I don't know why that's hard for people. But I was on um, I was on Crossfire. I was on Crossfire on CNN with Bill Nye. We were talking about global warming. Bill Nye, the science guy. I admitted, essentially, I don't know everything there is to know about climate change. I don't know if the science is settled. That in and of itself for Bill Nye was for him an admission of sort of complicity in this debate that I am anti-science. My admitting that I have questions on the science, which he thinks is settled on global warming, makes me anti-science, which is so unscientific to me. I mean, the whole process, the whole scientific process is to question and ask for proof absolutely, and test theories and hypotheses. And then once you finally have an answer, maybe then mm -hmm. the science is settled. Clearly you're wrong. I thought that was part of science. No, modern day science, SE, and let me just, I don't mean to okay. talk down to you, but when you're this ignorant, you need talking down to. Tell me. It's to wedge yourself to a conclusion, stick your fingers in your ear, go na, 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 na to anyone else who would offer something that could question the conclusion with which you are already wedded to. And then whenever possible, demonize. Yeah. Through your lack of understanding, anyone who asks questions. That's science today. That's science. Now, yeah. let me just offer you as an example of that. This is how a scientist, for example, would address the common core debate, right? Quickly, you and I, we, we know some of the arguments. Uh, I'm not a scientist, but I do know some of the arguments. In yeah. opposition to common core. Sure. Could you give me one? Uh, sure. It treats every child in every part of the country the same. Right. And of every, That's right. Yeah. One size fits all, right. lack of experimentation, quashes innovation, weds yourself to one certain standard and says, let's go for it, America. Right. When innovation- I'm not a scientist. Innovation comes in many forms through the process of chaos, failure, trial and error, and so forth. Competition. That's one, for example, opposition to Common Core. Uh, not, 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 in, uh, not in Bill Nye's world. This is Bill Nye on why people would be opposed to Common Core. The other reason people seem to be, my perception of what people are, uh, don't like about core curricula is it forces them to learn standard stuff when they could be teaching their kids things that are inconsistent with what we know about science. I'm talking about God. people that want to teach creationism instead of yep. biology. And that's just bad. I mean, And the excuse or the... Justification is you don't want the government telling you what to do. Bill Nye. <laughs> oh, my God. Has a feud going on with creationism. <laughs> yeah. Between the idea of evolution and creationism. He has superimposed it onto 
this Common Core debate. He shows a fundamental lack of understanding in the people that disagree with him. Not that, SC. I'm sorry, that was too charitable. He shows a fundamental desire to understand the people who actually disagree with him. He would rather just assume the worst. Mm -hmm. And by, by the way, not just assume the worst, assume that everybody that disagrees with him believes the same thing across the board, no matter the issue. You see what I'm saying? But Whether that's or not exactly, it's Common Core yeah. or climate change or X science issue, B science issue, C science issue. They're if you the disagree, same you're ignorant. They're just, right. And they're all the same people. And if you admit to if you admit to maybe being a little ignorant, then you're anti the truth, which is the side that he's on. Um, I had not heard that clip, but that is so offensive. Bill Nye is essentially saying that he and science know better for your child than you do. You can't, I mean, leave creationism out of it. I no, mean, but that's the point he can't. No, no, no. I, I, I'm saying for the sake of my argument, he's he's coming down on creationism, which is very easy for him to do. But what about anything else, like virtually anything else? What if I want to teach my kids something about sex, about abstinence, about um, morality, Am I going against uh, science in doing that? I mean, Bill Nye, see, the logical conclusion of Bill Nye's argument is that Bill Nye wants science to do all the teaching for us. And where does morality come in? Well, that's too questionable. That's subjective. So that has no role in your child's life. It would have to because otherwise Bill Nye would have to agree that creationism or a creation story would fall into that morality category, and you should be allowed to teach whatever kind of morality you want to your kids. You would have to put that all in a category and say, that's your business. We'll handle the science. We'll handle the math. We'll handle the English. We'll handle the language arts and the history. You handle the morality. What he seems to be saying is, don't teach your kids morality. That's wrong. You can't teach, can't talk to your kids about morality. That has nothing to do with science, and it's subjective. That's certainly... uh one take from it. Mine, I just think, is this. I mean, if Bill Nye believed in an active monetary policy from the Federal Reserve and he encountered someone who suggested that they're for the strong dollar, he would revert to the idea that you're a creationist. <laughs> you're anti-science. You must believe that the only true value comes from God and therefore money is a derivative of God's value and that's why you're opposed to active federal monetary policy. You're anti-science. Yeah, you're a creationist. It's so arrogant. If you encountered someone, if Bill Nye, I think, encountered someone who was um, in favor of the death penalty, well, it's because they're creationists. If you encountered someone who's for Ukrainian separatism, well, it's their, they're creationist. Anti-science. Yeah. I think Bill Nye, in a, in a way, is almost becoming, not almost, has become a science televangelist. Well, I mean, he I is. I think it's charitable. I, th- I think he's become a cartoon, a character. But but in the same way the televangelists are so righteous, some, I'm generalizing, are so righteous and assured of their positions, Bill Nye is the same way. And, um, you know, that includes talking down to people. That includes, um, you know, a level of arrogance that I, I, I just, I've never really seen in a lot of other scientists. It's just bizarre think, to me. You think Bill Nye pees in the shower? I think Bill Nye blows his nose in the shower. <laughs> <laughs> no, just make him like everybody else. What were you saying about um about how 
how old your kids have to be before you stop showering with them? Yeah, there's. I mean, there's a point at which your antennas go up and start buzzing. Like, hmm, is it different for a? Is this a, inappropriate? Is it different for men and women though? You mean like if I have a daughter or a son? No, like me? if I, like, will the age at which I have to stop showering with my kids is that a different age than when you have to? I think it's all it's it's dependent upon whether or not you are showering with a son or a daughter. I think opposite sex. Um, shorter lifespan. Shorter lifespan for the shower, the, the the communal shower. This is all stuff I have to learn. Yeah, I don't think we've nailed down a an age, by the way. Eye to genitals. I think that's a very safe rule. Eye to genitals. Um, when we come back, um, is there a place in society today, still today, for unpaid interns on Candy Cup? You are listening to Kane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network. You're listening to Kane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network. Art in Colorado has a million-dollar idea. I'll be the judge of that. We'll just see if Art in Colorado has one. Art, what's your million-dollar idea? Yes. Hi. Hi. Hello? Yes, Art. Make us millionaires. Okay. What do you got? Okay. I've got a little medical device I've been working on for 15 years. Um, it's used to clean the lungs out of uh, mucus secretions and such. Like uh, if you have pneumonia or a cold or a bronchiectasis or cystic fibrosis or chronic bronchitis or anything like that. All right. Was it? How does it work? It uses sound. It uses sound waves to break, uh, to, uh, to loosen up and uh, break up and liquefy uh, the secretions so you can uh, cough it up or get it out very easily. Well, Art, this sounds like an actual really good idea. I hope we are not the first people you're telling it to. Uh, no, actually, we just got we just got FDA clearance for it. Oh, good. So you don't really need us. You, you're well on your way to establishing this great idea. That's great, Art. By the uh, way, I saw something on HBO Real Sports where Boomer Esiason's kid has cystic fibrosis, and they were talking about this exact issue where he spends so much of his time having to cough up the, the excess mucus that's created. And they used things. I don't know if they used what you're talking about here, to, to, that he has to attach to his chest and back to do just that, to break it up. Right. They, uh, they use something called a vest a lot of times nowadays. And the vest mm. is uh, pretty cum- cumbersome. It uh, can break ribs. It can, oh. It's not very comfortable. Wow. It's, uh, it's not, um, it works very well, but it's not portable. Well, good uh, luck with your idea, Art. We think we think it sounds really good yeah. and and probably a little bit more legitimate than than what I was uh, what I had in mind from from our our viewers. That's um, good. No, that's good. Um, that's great. I have to see how that how that follow how that goes with Art. Hey, listen. When I was in college, um, I've always I don't know how to say this SE without sound. I've revered blue collar jobs. Okay, um, I think it's important. Yeah. Uh, for everyone to have one it's character building yeah so listen i went and got myself a job at a um what do you call it like a greenhouse like a landscaping business but the nursery guy, a, thank you a nursery <laughs> this is why this job didn't last very long <laughs> <laughs> uh 
I carried sod and fertilizer from one end of the nursery to the other. I helped stock the plants on the shelves as landscapers would come in and buy them and so forth. On day two of employment, I'm with the owner. And he says to me, what are you going to do when school comes back? You know, I'm like, oh, well, I'm going to go back to school. Mm-hmm. And I could see his facial expression change. I think he thought I'd made a career move. Oh. <laughs> I was huh. fired on day three. Really? Yeah. I was like, oh, Not he wanted somebody more committed to the job than a summer job, which I thought I was honest about. Hmm. Um, so I got off to a, an illustrious start in my blue Didn't collar. Did you also career. do like guiding? Guiding, yeah. I'm, I'm going to be. I mean, that was part of it as well. Yeah, I worked in Montana on a ranch and did uh, guiding for hunters mm-hmm. and sapphire miners hmm. um, for a year. That but sounds fun. Those are some of the jobs I took. Yeah, not for the pay. Right. I know where you're going with this. Um. Yeah, there's there's these the, this new cottage industry it looks like of lawsuits suing for back pay after you've agreed to an unpaid internship. Right? So you get this great unpaid internship at say CBS or Fox for a movie uh at a at a media company. You think this is great, this is going to be my foot in the door. I'm going to get all this great experience. I know I'm working for free, that's fine, but life experience potential job down the line and then you do the job it's not exactly what you thought it was going to be it wasn't uh you know you didn't meet all the movie stars Mm -hmm. you didn't get a a role in the film you weren't sitting in there while they were making deals (laughs) right you weren't instrumental in signing new contracts um you were getting coffee and like delivering scripts and so then you sue for back pay and you think um that internship didn't pay didn't pay me enough. Didn't pay me anything. I sh- I should have been making money. A lot of the times, these unpaid intern lawsuits are successful. One recent one, a, a, a girl named Mallory Masalam was working for CBS and Worldwide Pants Letterman mm-hmm. Letterman show, which I, I would think would be cool, cool experience. It's an unpaid intern for four four months. Uh, she sued afterwards. But she since dropped the charges and has issued like an apology. She feels really bad. She said she was coerced um, by some law firm, some attorneys, to to sue the company. But look, she's not the uh, she's not the only one. And the laws on paying and or not paying interns are really tricky. There's different laws for like nonprofits. You're allowed to have unpaid volunteers for a company. The job must benefit the intern, not the employer, which I would think opens up a huge legal can of worms. Absolutely. Who who decides what's beneficial? Who you know? I, I could say, look, you are benefiting from getting my coffee and delivering my scripts because you get access to this world mm-hmm. that uh, other people don't get, and you have a foot into a potential job down the down the line. Yeah, you know, I saw a web, uh, an advertisement last night for, I think it's a website called Gatekeepers, but the, the ad is a, a guy trying to get his resume into a company and hit, the door keeps locking and other that's people right. get What's to walk in. That's right. What's the password? Right. That's right. What's the password? He tries, uh, he tries uh, Synergy. <laughs> it doesn't work. But the point of the ad is actually applicable to this debate. What you gain, what your payment is in an unpaid internship often is two things. Yes, it's experience. And the experience isn't necessarily what you thought it would be. Getting coffee may not be giving you the experience you thought you were going to get. I know you thought you were going to be in the meeting with uh, the lead 
the, the, the president of Warner Brothers on, well, they should give this movie to Matt Damon. <laughs> and it didn't add up to that. But the other is you're through the gate and you're meeting people and you know people. And you now you know who you have to talk to to get the real job. If not that person, someone else. You're and one of four people through the gate. And, the and, other like 300 billion people in the world didn't get through the gate. And it stinks that the world works that way. Yeah. It stinks that it's a who you know world. But you just got access to the who you know world of the career or uh, industry, I, I suppose, you're interested in. That's the payment. Yeah, I, you know, I, the value of unpaid internships, I guess you could debate. I, I think it's probably different in different fields. I know in my field in media, having an unpaid internship for a magazine or a newspaper or a television company, if that's where you wanted to go, that was huge. And I, I couldn't afford to work for free over the summers and like live in New York City. So um, I got like paid jobs and I was competing against kids uh, who who worked for free at Newsweek or New York Magazine um, or Vanity Fair or Time. And I was so jealous. I mean, I wanted those experiences. And so for my for my field, I think it was imperative. And I know a lot of people in politics, it's the same situation. If you don't go down and, and intern for a summer in D.C., either at like a policy think tank or on the Hill, you're you're just not in the game. You're just not part of the game. Yeah, and therefore the idea that you got taken advantage of because you didn't get, I don't know, what, no, you're $7 in a very dollars an hour, you're- $9 an hour. Set aside the fact that you did this as a voluntary choice. You knew what was going to happen. Right. You're going to work and not get paid. That's right. right. Set aside you went into this voluntarily. Yeah. Um, you got something else out of it, and that's the entire point. You can't go back in time and go, oh, I was really taken advantage of here. Um, yeah, not to mention the fact that, look, if you don't get an unpaid internship because you can't afford um, you know, to work for free, I hear you. I had to work doubly hard, and that was a good experience for me too. That taught me a lot as well. I had to learn on the job. I had to have a couple jobs at the same time. I had to get published and send clips in. I mean, I had to, I had to prove myself. And and that was valuable too. I'm not saying you can't do it without an unpaid internship. We do it in this industry all the time. Oh, people! I love this. People, I I do a lot of like boot camps on how to get into this kind of job. People are shocked to learn that everyone on television is not a multimillionaire. And what I tell them is, in news, most people you see on television are not getting are paid. working for free. That's absolutely right. For years. Why? Oh, exposure. Exposure. exposure benefits you more than it benefits me. Right. That's what you you'll hear. You you walk into a network a, a executive and you say, "Look, I've been, I've been on the air for your for your network for for years for free. Coming in maybe every day, maybe every week for free." There's clearly a value here. You keep using me. You you clearly like me. That's the fallacy we all have, right? You like me. <laughs> so um, can you start paying me? No. It's more useful for you than it is for me. Which is a nice way of saying you are totally replaceable, <laughs> and we're using you because we can use you for free. You know what we should do? And Let's you, do this. And the fact that you've been doing it this long is actually a disadvantage to you. You're welcome. Because we know that you're willing to keep doing it for this long. Right. Are you speaking from personal experience? I, I know people. I know people for whom that has happened. Let's do this. Let's talk about – we should – a little later in the show, let's do this. Let's talk about cable news, the status of cable news. Mm. What's wrong with it besides the fact that you have to work for free? <laughs> work for free for years. 
how do you fix it? Because for so many of the cable news outlets, it's just not panning out for him, man. <laughs> no, and you'd um, think, oh, after all this time, there'd be some formula. Like, here's how to get ratings. And we can no. talk about somebody who's actually now getting paid. Former White House spokesman, press flax, propagandists get paid by your cable news outlets. That's a fact. And that's a new thing. And that's a new thing. That This is a... That's another interesting conversation. We're going to bring Noah Rothman, formerly of Mediaite, now of Hot Air. He is a media critic on to discuss okay. all that's going on with cable news. Let's take a quick break. Uh, we'll get into this at the top of the hour. We'll see you in just a moment on Kane and Cup. You're listening to Kane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network. You're listening to Kane and Cup. Now we almost came back again, not knowing we're on air. Will was trying to tell me that somehow his snot in the shower is more clean than his urine in the shower. I just, I said, I honestly don't do the peeing in the shower thing. I, I believe don't. you, but you, you, you said why? Because it's dirty. Yet you'll tell me that ten out of ten times you'll blow your nose in the shower. Mm-hmm. Actually, your urine is sterile. Snot has germs in it. Your argument falls apart. It's clear. Because science. You're not good at science either, it turns out. It just, I don't have. <laughs> you just don't like it. Just don't. <laughs> That's what it comes down to. You just don't like it. You know what? What? That's something else somebody doesn't like. <laughs> you like that? You like that? Uh, no, that was a bad transition. Transition. Real quick, Michael Moore's out. Yeah. Making making some news. He was at the Toronto Film Festival and uh, he was promoting the 25th anniversary of Roger and Me, his his documentary on um, General Motors, and and he was asked, "What's President Obama going to be going to be known for? What's his legacy going to be?" And he said, "I think Obama has done many many good things, but well, we have the clip. Play the clip, Jose." You do read the Hollywood Reporter, Mr. President, don't you? When the history is written of this era, this is how you'll be remembered. He was the first black president. Okay, not a bad accomplishment, but that's it. That's it, Mr. Obama. A hundred years from now, he was the first black American that got elected president. And that's it. Eight years of your life, and that's what people are going to remember. Boy, I got a feeling knowing you that you'd probably wish you were remembered for a few other things, a few other things you could have done. So it's a, it is on that level. A big disappointment. Clearly, Michael Moore is disappointed. I, I don't agree with him. Do you agree with him? I have two takes on this. Okay. Number one, if somebody with an R beside their name or who described themselves as a conservative said this exact same phrase, they would absolutely be flayed. Yeah. They would be branded as a racist. The conversation would be a week long at least to say that the only thing of note about President Obama in the last eight years is his skin color. Mm-hmm. Right. Would be complete public outrage. Right. Number two, I think I think liberals are ungrateful. I think that the the progressive liberal movement has fought for universal health care for over a century, achieved it in part fifty years ago. As close as they're ever gonna get to it, yeah. And numerous presidents, including Bill Clinton, failed yeah. to get anything accomplished. And whether or not 
you and I disagree with it, mm-hmm. when that our listeners think it's something good or bad, and we all know how we feel about it, it he got was it. a massive political accomplishment, one that probably cost him much of his next eight years. And I can't believe they simply look over an, on, an accomplishment on their agenda list they couldn't get for 50 years. Yeah, a massive accomplishment. Um, I, you know, I, I think President Obama is going to be remembered for a lot. Not a lot of good things. I think his legacy is going to be pretty tainted, actually. I think people are going to look back and have some pretty strong criticism of his foreign policy and his economic agenda. But I also think, um, you know, if if I were being generous, I would say the president has um, has probably done a lot for middle class, um, you know, yeah. or, or at least he thinks he has. In the end, it will be a Jimmy Carter review of foreign policy. It will be noted as as that and the the accomplishment of Obamacare. When we come back on Cana Cup, let's talk about cable news, how you fix it. You're listening to Cana Cup on the Blaze Radio Network. Radio Network. The president's much-anticipated ISIS speech on Thursday was not the most entertaining part of Thursday night. No? No. Speech, I thought, I, I, I didn't like the speech. I didn't think it was good. We don't have to get into it. Surprise, surprise. I didn't like it. Um, I took to Twitter and explained why. What happened after the speech on CNN's uh, panel, was so much more entertaining. CNN had uh, Anderson Cooper, Jake Tapper, Donna Brazil, and then they brought in Senator John McCain and Jay Carney, CNN, new hire, former White House spokesperson. Uh, welcome to Jay as, as a, a CNN um, employee. Welcome, Jay Carney. And... Senator McCain wasted no time, no time in going after Jay Carney on some things that both he had said and that the president had said. Take a listen. That's not what I said, Senator. Damaged. I said, uh, if I could, if I could, sir, what I said is, well, Senator, I, look, so, I, I'm not, so the fact I, I think is we have to agree to disagree is, on no, this. No, 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 facts are stubborn things, Mr. Carney. And that, Again, Senator, we're going to have to agree to disagree. And I can, you know, I can posit with great respect for you that you we disagree you on can't. that and that you, no, you and can't, that you, because sir, you don't have the facts. You don't have well, the facts, Mr. Carney. That's the problem. Senator, I understand that, that uh, you present the facts that you believe are true based on the argument no, that you've made no, not, long, not I believe for a long true, time, sir, true. that we should leave troops in Iraq in perpetuity. Uh, and that's just not uh, what this president believes. Excuse this me, sir, but I think you've forgotten that the, the date for withdrawal has. I think was... you've forgotten. No, the, the date for withdrawal we, didn't need it, to go through the... the... That's a lot of the crosstalk. A lot of oh, and it didn't end there. It became the Jay Carney, John McCain show. That's a little bit, by the way, what we just played, a compilation. It's a series of cuts of how many times they were interrupting each other, having to talk over each other. It's n- it wasn't quite that hectic in real time. It was spread out over five minutes, which honestly was only more inflammatory. It had John McCain on several occasions saying, you don't, you distort, you don't know the facts, essentially saying you are a liar. 
Yeah, it was um it was it was entertaining for a number of reasons. I mean, uh, it it felt a little personal. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it felt like you know, 5 6 years of frustration, pent-up frustration was just in unleashed. Right. You know, these um these elected officials get real I think frustrated at spokespeople who talk on behalf of the president and um this was sort of John McCain's chance to just unleash. It was, I thought, really entertaining. I'm not sure what it accomplished, but I guess we're in for more of that with with Jay Carney as a new CNN hire. Let's bring in Noah Rothman, formerly of Mediaite, now with Hot Air. He is a media critic uh, and a friend. Noah, first, just give me your initial thoughts on the Jay Carney, John McCain show that took over CNN's post-speech analysis. Well, I agree with both of you guys. It was really entertaining, first off. Uh, it was a little predictable, though. You kind of knew that that's what Jay Carney was going to come in to do. He's only been out of the uh, the briefing room for about three months. So you kind of expected that he was going to come in with his press secretary hat still on, and he, he certainly did. Uh, it was great television, but you feel like CNN could have saved a whole bunch of money if they just booked Josh Ernest or Lisa Monaco to do the exact same thing. It would have been the, the same segment, probably a little less combative, but not much. Well, I'm glad you said that because this is a question I have. And, you know, Jay Carney is not the first Weiss, White House press secretary to get a job in cable news. Um, Robert Gibbs uh, ended up working at MSNBC for some time. And I'm wondering what your Ari take Fleischer on this. Ari Fleischer for CNN. Ari Fleischer, that's right. Uh, Stephanie Cutter is on my show, Crossfire. Um, she was she was a, a, a Obama spokes, spokeswoman. Um, this seems to be a phenomenon that everyone just kind of accepted without really much analysis, Noah. And I just find it, look, I find it really entertaining to watch... Um, other people try to knock former spokespeople off their talking points, right? Because that's that's sort of the game. You have a former sp- uh, spokesperson. You know that person is no longer spokesperson. And so you want to get them finally off talking points. That's part of the challenge. But I also find it a little problematic. Um, I don't really know what to expect in terms of honesty from a former spokesperson. Because as I see it, there's like eight layers separating the spokesperson from the truth. One is you want to protect your former boss. The other is you want to protect yourself and the things that you've said for the past few years. You don't want to look like a liar now. The other idea is you might want to work in this town again, and you're only as good as your last job. So, so therefore, you don't want to totally blow it. So right? therefore, I know what to expect. Nothing. What? Nothing. Well, I mean, that's why I want I, I want Noah's take because I'm I'm hoping that there's that Noah can tell me that there's some added value in having these folks on other than just look they they know a lot about the work they know a lot about the office and they can give great behind the scenes takes of what kinds of conversations are having in the briefing room or in the White House or in the Oval Office that's great but asking an opinion. What am I what am I expecting there Noah? Well, you just raised one really good point because there are some models of people who make it out of the, the briefing room or their role as some sort of a spokesman for a committee or a, or a, uh, an office 
and transition really well into the cable news environment. Um, but the qualities that make you a good cable news pundit make you a terrible press secretary. Uh, you mentioned one, which is candor. Um, you have to be really open and forthright with uh, a lot of the things that happen behind the scenes, and that might necessarily that might upset a few people who you were used to work for yeah. or work with. Uh, Dana Perino is a good example of that. She's very candid. She doesn't necessarily uh, contradict herself or rag on her old boss, but she most certainly talks about some elements of her job that she wouldn't have talked about if she was outside of that role, talking about, for example, freezing out MSNBC in the last years of the Bush administration. That's something that she probably wouldn't have disclosed in her prior role. Mm -hmm. And another is Robert Gibbs. Robert Gibbs is a really good cable news pundit because he goes off the reservation a lot. He talks about when during the entire mess of you know, surrounding the um, the healthcare uh, yeah. website rollout, he was really critical candid about how things were a disaster. How somebody was inexplicable for the for the White House to use his words to not fire somebody, just roll ahead somewhere along the line. And he gives you a lot of really good sound bites. So those are two examples of of how you can make it work, but you really have to shed a lot of those qualities that you cultivated as a press secretary to do that. Can I? I think that. Um... Both of you guys, S.E. and Noah, are, are off just a little bit. And I'll suggest that the analysis is a little bit like what we were accused President Obama of making, the fault that he, he makes in his foreign policy, seeing the world you want it to be versus seeing the world the way it is. We want, all of us as we sit around, we want people on television to, to be candid. We want them to be blunt. We want them to have an intelligent opinion. But that desire, while it's shared at the, in the executive offices of cable news, is a momentary desire. It, it exists as a subservient desire to the food fight. And this can be an analysis you can hear across the country from couches to, to, to you and I on the microphone right now, but it's the truth. That fight with Jay Carney between Jay Carney and John McCain, they got their money's worth. CNN got their money's worth. It's about entertainment. That's all cable news is. It's not about enlightenment. It's not about can. It's not about being honest or candid. It's about entertainment, and it's entertaining to see people fight. And if Jay Carney signed up for that to constantly be a punching bag with whoever they put him up against, CNN will get their money's worth. Well, Noah, I I don't know. Maybe I still hold out some hope that there's real news value potential, at least for news value uh, in cable news. It, should I just? Sort of hang up my hat and go home? Look who's rewarded. No, I'd love for you to say I'm wrong and Essie's right, but I just look what is rewarded. What do you think, Noah? Well, I, I, no, I think that there's, there's truth to both elements of that, and we're going to get into this later, but there's two jobs that a cable news network has to do. One is to cover breaking news authoritatively, and the other is to fill time when there's no news. And that means being an entertainer. That's my mantra, is that a lot of people forget that they're in the entertainment business. If mm -hmm. you're on television right. or behind your microphone, you're in the entertainment business, and your job is to keep somebody happy and forget about their life for two, two, five, ten minutes. Uh, so, yeah, when Jay Carney and, and, and John McCain were going at it, that was supremely entertaining, and that job was checked off. They, they had done their, their work for that, for that minute. So I don't think that that's necessarily bad. Mm -hmm. You have to do both things. You can't have a cable news network that's purely uh, just a news crawl and just news readers reading off a teleprompter. Right. That doesn't get the numbers. And, and that news network isn't going to be around very long, or it certainly isn't going to make any numbers and, and make any waves and uh, you know, generate advertising dollars. So it, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a double-edged sword. You've got to do both things. You've got to do both things well. Well, and I'm not under any you know, illusions that uh, my, th this business that I'm a part of is meant to be entertaining. I'm, I, I get that. 
But at the same time, if you're going to hire a spokesperson, look, I can say what Jay Carney said. I can be critical of the president I, 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 or, or what Robert gives it. I could say it. The point is he's supposed to have more information than I have, more insight than I have. And him being honest means more than him being critical means more than me being critical. Right. Because it's coming from someone who was paid to stick up for the president. If he's not willing to be honest and critical at times, um, then I'm not sure he's doing his duty. And look, he's only just started. I'm actually going to be on television with him tomorrow. And and maybe he's going to get there. In fact, he was asked about this after the McCain scuffle. And uh, he said, look, was I supposed to trash the president of the United States for taking action that any president would do when we're faced with a threat like the Islamic State? He said... I believed in what Obama wanted to do. I still do. That doesn't mean he gets everything right. I think he'd be the first to say that. And he says, I embrace. I don't in any way distance myself from what I did for the last five and a half years. I'm proud to have been a part of it. And I had a strong relationship that I intend to keep forever. I think he's honest about, you know, the fact that he liked his job. He liked his boss. He believed in his boss. But that doesn't mean he got everything right. I hope it gets a little more interesting than that (laughs) over the next few weeks and months that we have Jay Carney at CNN because he really is in a unique position to talk about some of the decisions that were made or even just to talk on on a comms level on a communications level about the way that information gets filtered out of the White House that would be really interesting I'd like to know more from Jay Carney about that Noah do you do you see do you see any potential for Jay to weigh in on on those kinds of moments Absolutely, he's been. He was a reporter before he was a, uh, right. a flack. He knows. He knows exactly what this business is like on both ends of it, and he's extremely well sourced. Uh, he's a good, a good pundit. But as I wrote on Hot Air, it was just a premature hire. A lot of these, you need to be a little bit more removed yeah. from the office for you to be able to to shed a lot of those instincts, which again make you a great press secretary, but make you a problematic pundit. Uh, and what we saw on the other night was a press secretary defending his role, defending his boss. It yeah. wasn't it wasn't honest punditry. It was compelling and entertaining. Yeah, and it was an opinion. It was a debate. Right. Really. Yeah, but it, yeah, exactly. It wasn't, yeah. it, wasn't, well, uh, it wasn't entertainment. I think, um, you know, a lot of uh, all the networks are trying to figure out how to do what you just talked about, Noah. Balance the breaking news, which can certainly be great for ratings when there is breaking news, um, with the the moments in between, how to how to be entertaining, and so when we come back, I want to ask you, Noah, to design your perfect prime time lineup. Um, it's something that network executives that get paid millions and millions of dollars have not entirely been able to figure out. So uh, we don't, we're not trying to put so you on luck. the spot, <laughs> but but uh, I'd love your insight. That's coming up next on Kane and Cup. You're listening to. Kane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network. Kane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back. We are we are solving cable news right here on Kane and Cup. <laughs> We're joined by Noah Rothman. He's a 
media critic, formerly of Mediaite, now with Hot Air. Um, Noah, you know, people will look at Fox and they'll say <clears throat> their primetime lineup is pretty successful. It is. It rates really well. Then on the other hand, you know, during breaking news, CNN's ratings shoot up because they, they go wall to wall on breaking news and really sort of take a step back from uh, punditry during those times. Uh, you remember during the Malaysian airliner flight, they went wall to wall. Ferguson, they went wall to wall. And that's when CNN does really well. MSNBC has a similar model to Fox in that it sticks with opinion, but it, it, it doesn't seem to um, ever have the kind of spikes that a Fox or a CNN will. What is your view of what a primetime lineup should look like? What what should it be delivering that would be both successful and also entertaining and also have some news value? Well, this is a great question. I had a lot of fun with this. Um, first, you, there's nothing that I have to tell the Blaze fans that don't already know about the gap in the market. There is a huge gap in the cable news market for a conservative competitor to Fox. It doesn't have to be have an editorial voice to the right or to the left of Fox. It just has to generally be perceived as of the right while remaining authoritative, able to compete with major international news outlets. Not a, a small feat, yeah. uh, but it, it is something that there's a lot of uh, little competitors that are trying to get into that market. It's not easy, as the Blaze knows really well. Um, but it's starting. People are people see this as not, not a unique observation. And secondly, like we talked in the last uh, segment, cable has two missions. It has to cover breaking news, and then it has to fill time when there is no news. And as you mentioned, Fox and MSNBC do rely a lot on opinion programming, and that gets the job done when there is no breaking news. CNN kind of owns the breaking news uh, aspect of this business, in part because of their legacy, but in, also in part because they have a really solid, solid stable set of uh, reporters. Uh, yeah, so, all over the and world. They can draw on, and they can draw on that, but so does NBC News, mm-hmm. right? But MSNBC doesn't benefit when there is breaking news, and they lean on the NBC News organization pretty heavily. So why doesn't it pop? It's because they branded it as an entertainment network in the same way that, that Fox has. So in big news breaks, you lose that, that part of the, the audience. But you always have a big, solid, stable set of viewers to draw. Fox has a huge, stable set of viewers. Mm-hmm. MSNBC has a littler set because they're competing a little bit more than Fox is. Uh, so with the breaking news caveat aside, you do need, you do need good reporters. You need a, a stable of reporters to cover news. But beyond that, you also need... Uh, opinion programming. And I, you know, to be a little New York-centric, if I was doing this, I would program this network in the same way that Phil Boyce programmed WABC in 2000, 2004, uh, which is personality-driven, uh, authentic talk show hosts. No, nobody had a radio voice on WABC then. Uh, and it was personally personality-driven programming. You'll probably need one big flagship host, a huge name, who will draw millions of dollars in salary, but that doesn't mean you need a lot of people with big names. One of the best things that Fox did recently was to draw from the blogosphere and give Reason Magazine its own show. Mm-hmm. That was a brilliant move. It drew so, a whole new audience. All right, so no, you laid out, laid out your analysis. Now lay me out your primetime lineup. Right, well, actual... Uh, yeah, you have names for me, surely, right? I don't know necessarily who they are. I want to be surprised by the blogosphere. But there are some people who are underutilized, I think, in this business who could probably do really well. For example, when Jake Tapper was brought up from the uh, White House press corps 
I don't think anybody really knew that the anchor of ABC's White House uh, press corps would, would be really good as a cable news host. But he's spectacular. Um, his successor, John Carl, if you've ever talked to him off the air, is hysterical. He's yeah, he's really a fun, fun guy. Very easygoing, really clever. He's the kind of guy who could also hold a show. There's probably a lot of that. And, and like I said, that's kind of a big name who would draw a lot of money. And I think that you could hire one or two of those guys and anchor a show pretty pretty heavily. But there's so much talent. There is a business. lot. There's a lot of talent. And, you know, Fox, I will say, is really good at, at like, plucking out young talent and giving people a shot on the air. Um, MSNBC does that, too, to a to a lesser extent. And, and I don't think quite as successfully. But um, there's a ton of talent out there, and and that's the good news. I, I just hope that people get people get a little creative. It, it feels like a, a lot of people in this business are doing the same old, same old things, and it's time to have some fun. That's what I love about working at the Blaze. Actually, we get a lot of a lot of freedom and creativity. Noah, thanks for joining us. We really appreciate it. That thanks, was fun. Noah. All right, Thank stay you, tuned. More Canaan Cup coming up next. We've got um got a lot more to talk about. This is Kane and Cup, part of the next generation of talk radio on the Blaze Radio Network. Part of the next generation of talk radio, Kane and Cup is on. Welcome back to Kane and Cup. I'm Essie Cup. Well, I am not going to be in studio with you next weekend. No, no. I'll, I'll. I'm going to be doing the show with you from from Washington because I'm going on a dove hunt next weekend. It's my first. I've I've shot a lot of birds, pheasant, wood woodcock, and grouse and quail and ducks and geese my first dove hunt fun this is your favorite kind of hunting i think right um dove is up there with my favorite hunting i like duck hunting it requires getting up early it's cold yeah yeah but it's fun because it's active you're calling you're in on it there's action when they come in and there's tension and you know but dove is the social hunt dove is the one where you can hang out with your buddies you don't really have to be quiet Mm -hmm. you can drink beer I'm sorry, you, what? You uh, You can what? I mean, refreshments. Oh, okay. Adult beverages? Okay. And, and uh, um, yeah, so dove is a lot of fun. Plus, it's just like target practice. You didn't get into a good dove hunt. It's yeah. just like shooting skeet. I mean, it's almost like pull, you know, stop. My gun needs to uh, cool down. Right, right, right. Well, I'm going to have to cool it a little um, because, uh, you know, I had yet another uncomfortable conversation to my uh, obstetrician mm. about whether I'm allowed to do X activity while pregnant. I mean, this has been a theme throughout my pregnancy. Mm. So I had to call her, can I go dove hunting um, at seven and a half months pregnant? She goes, what is that? Like it was a euphemism for something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, like, like it was a metaphor. Um, and I told What'd her, she well, say? I mean, a lot of percussion, boom, boom, boom. Uh, some, some recoil. I mean, I yeah, a lot of, Putting the kid through a rock concert. Well, I actually, I have a piece coming out on CNN.com this week about my experience hunting and fishing while pregnant. 
and how answers on a lot of these questions are hard to come by. I hope people check it out. But she said, yeah, once I explained to her what was going to happen, she was like, you know, as long as it's not all day repetitive, um, then it's probably okay. So I'll I'll take it easy. I won't shoot every five seconds for five hours. Um, but yeah, it's the the noise concern, the recoil concern, and then lead exposure. So what are you gonna? You know, why lead exposure? You gonna be? Are you gonna be eating the BBs that come out of the shotgun? <laughs> no, shot? no. I guess there's a concern more more so at a gun range than hunting. There's a concern for overexposure to lead. Just look over there during the middle of a hunt, and as he's just like one by one eating BBs out of a shotgun pellet <laughs> like blueberries. What are you, what are you doing? <laughs> Don't eat the lead. Stop that. It's bad for your child. I mean, if you weren't pregnant, I'd understand. <laughs> <laughs> then it would be okay. I remember, uh, I remember, I'm excited. I remember one time I was hunting. I was on a duck hunt, um, and we did an evening duck hunt. It was like a sunset duck hunt. You know, it's like sunrise and sunset. Those are your chances when the ducks are moving. And we were hunting, one of us, me and a buddy, with one of us had a gun that didn't have a plug in it. Shotguns have a plug that reduced the number of shells you can hold it to three. And anything over that, then you're illegally hunting with too many shells. And we're like, well, what if the game warden came out right now? You know, we're out here. We got no shells. Oh yeah, he didn't have a license either, so you're unlicensed. Oh boy, he doesn't have a show. What would, you, what would you do? What would you do if the game warden came out right now? And he was like, um, "This guy, by the way, played in the NFL. Played with Jay Feely, who was a guest on our program earlier today." He said, "I know what I do. I know what I do." I was like, "What would you do?" I uh, we'd already killed like five ducks around the ground. He's like. I'd take off all my clothes, take that duck, rub blood all over my back, and when when the, when the warden come and go, huh? What's going on? <laughs> and the hopes the warden would just be like, okay, all right, I'm gonna back away from this situation. I don't want to know. I don't know what you boys are doing, but your hunting license is at the not top of my concerns. <laughs> Wait, this at is least a game. Had a plan. This is a game. So my buddies and I have played. By the way, if you ever got pulled over by a cop and you've done something wrong, I don't know what you're doing. How do you get out of whatever it is you're doing? One of my buddies said he would immediately, the minute he's pulled over, run around to the front of his car and lay down against the hood. And I'm like, why? Because first of all, because so their dash cam can no longer see me. Oh, my God. And so when the police officer walks around to the front of your car, right, and the dash cam can no longer see everything that's going on, start yelling, don't touch me there. What are you doing? Don't touch me oh there. Oh, my God. <laughs> Wow, that's perverse. Lessons in <laughs> Yeah. If you try that, let me know how it works out. This is um <laughs> it, look, you got to have a plan for every scenario. Right. I appreciate planning. Uh well, I'll let you know how the dove hunt goes. We will be licensed and our guns are legal. That's good. Yeah. If not, you, not worried about try it. Try it out though. I would I mean, you might try it out if it, <laughs> okay. anything goes wrong. Rubbing rubbing blood all over me? Okay. All right. Uh, Got to take a serious turn when we come back on Canaan Cup because I actually have a topic I want to discuss with you is it whether or not parents can be held accountable for the criminal actions of their children or rather should parents be held accountable for the criminal actions of their children. This is an actual debate going on in New Jersey about whether or not a law should be passed that would make it so. When we come back on Canaan Cup. Will Kane and Desi Cup will continue in a moment on the Blaze Radio Network.
888-900-3393. Canaan Cup returns now. Chris Salcedo's coming up in about 15 minutes. You want to stick around for that. I want to ask you a question. We don't have a lot of time left together this morning, um, and this topic actually deserves more time than we're going to be able to give to it. But I bet we do it on Real News at some point. I bet you're right. Yeah. Uh, but I'd love to start to hear from you guys at home. 888-900-3393. Should a parent be held accountable for the crimes of their children? Now, this isn't theoretical. It's not abstract. Let me tell you what I'm talking about. There's a horrible story out of the state of New Jersey. A 12-year-old girl named Autumn um, was murdered by a 15-year-old schoolmate of hers. Um, his name was Justin. She rode her bike after arranging on Facebook together over to his house where he strangled her, stole her bike, and left her body in a blue recycling bin. Uh, almost two-day search ensued, trying to find Autumn while she was missing. Eventually, she was found in this recycling bin. Justin was charged with murder. At the trial... Um, during the sentencing phase, Justin's mother, so the defendant's mother, rose to say this. No one, hap- no one knows what happened on that day of the accident. The accident has been mischaracterized. She said her son has a physical deformity. He is emotionally and de- developmentally disabled, and he's a respectful, loving child with a sense of humor and love. Now, the father of the victim, Autumn's father, listening to this in the courtroom that day, said he couldn't believe what he was hearing that she was referring to it as an accident when clearly he'd already been convicted of a murder. The defendant's lawyer, Justin's lawyer, then got up and said the following. There was significant history, as outlined in Justin's psychiatric report, of domestic violence in the household when he was young. Justin suffered abuse, physical abuse, by his father. This was learned behavior, Your Honor. Justin saw his father strangle his mother on more than one occasion. Justin has inappropriate responses to stressors as a result of his disabilities. At that moment, the victim's father, Autumn's father, says, my light bulb went off so fast when I heard that. I looked at my lawyer who was next to me. I said, we have to do something about this. If it was learned behavior, then teach a different behavior. If you taught your son to kill, then you should be punished too. He is now advocating on Change.org in the state of New Jersey for something called Autumn's Law, that it can hold parents responsible for the acts, for the crimes of their children. Obviously, this is a whole beehive, hornet's nest, can of worms that opens about when you can be responsible for someone else's behavior. I understand the father's anger at hearing exactly that, not just that his daughter has been murdered, but hearing exactly that, that this is learned behavior, and somehow that's an excuse in the sentencing phase. But if that's an excuse, that doesn't, diminish culpability it transfers it mm. right and you want to find yeah. someone else to place it on i i get his impulse uh, and i like it look i i generally advocate for situations in which we can we can enforce we can, we can force parents to be more responsible i think parents these days abdicate a lot of their responsibilities over to schools and media and pop culture uh everyone's raising their kids but them you know, uh, whether it's sex education or drug education, alcohol education, well, they'll learn it all in school, so I don't have to have those tough talks. Um, you know, bullying. There's a whole lot that I think parents don't really take responsibility for, so I like it. I like that. I don't know that that's legally enforceable. I mean, what do you, you're the lawyer. What do you think? No, I, don't, I can't imagine a scenario, and I don't know where you would draw lines. Mm-hmm. 
you know, other people in this story, in this town of Clayton, New Jersey, are pointing out, you know, he let his daughter um, ride around town on her bicycle for hours and hours. And it was hours, eight hours before he um, became aware or his alarms went off that she was missing. Well, some would look at that and go, is that appropriate parenting? Mm. See, the point of appropriate parenting is so subjective, yeah. so gray, that we're you're going to have to, in order to transfer culpability, criminal culpability to someone else, you're going to have to draw some lines that I'm not sure society is ready to get involved in. Well, no, and you have to prove that the reason Justin killed Autumn was because of past abuse. Maybe, yes, he was abused. Maybe, yes, he had some violent tendencies. Maybe killing Autumn that day had nothing to do with it. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's just so hard to prove that tenuous connection. And that's what the burden is on the prosecutor, to prove that the result of that abuse— I mean, abuse is used as a, as a defense in court all the time. And that's kind of the point, I see. If it's, used as, if it's used as a diminishing factor, if it's relevant in that sense, it if is, it's yeah. relevant to diminishing Justin's capability, is it not relevant in establishing someone else's? Well, in yeah. this case, his father, perhaps, or his mother. But why is it any different, just because Justin's 16, why is it any different if I went in and and killed my husband and said that I had been abused as um, as a child, now I'm 35, but I killed my husband because I was abused earlier. Does does that transfer onto my parents right. who are in their, you know, late 60s? When does that, is it just because he's a child and so therefore his parents are more responsible than... Had my parents been? I mean, I, you know, I don't know where that ends. Well, parents it, can be responsible for a long time. I mean, in theory, it doesn't end at parents. It could, it could be on anyone who has an influential effect on your life, right? Because right. the argument is about influence. Right. That's right. I mean, I don't think it's necessarily uh, related to blood, right? You're not mm-hmm. suggesting some sort right. of necessity that someone is genetically related to you. What if you had a foster parent? Is it living in the same home? What if you had extended family members all living in the same home together? So uncles and aunts in the same home, but it was one of the uncles that had the negative influence that created this behavior. Or go on beyond that. If you're going to say it's beyond blood, it's beyond genetics, it's perhaps beyond the home. It's the neighbor. I watched behavior from the neighbor on a daily basis that I began to emulate. Go on beyond that. Go beyond the neighbor. Television. You can keep going if influence is the effect. Learned behavior. You can learn behavior from a number of different places. You can learn it in school. Um, I, I just think it's tough to prove. I sympathize and I love the idea of holding parents more accountable and making parents directly responsible for the actions of their kids the way they would be if their kid got in a car accident. They'd be responsible for the car insurance going up. You know, I, I like that. I don't know that that's that that's legally realistic. Well, I know. I, I think that it isn't. Um, I, I Again, I do sympathize, and I think there's plenty of conversations to have around parenting, but I'm not sure there's co- conversations to be had about criminal liability. That's just a road that seems to have no clear off-ramps. Yeah, I wonder if there's been any movement on – I know there was a, a movement to try and get make parents legally culpable for bullying, right? Like you've heard these stories where a kid is bullied, the kid – commit suicide and then the parents of that kid holds the parents right of the other kids responsible for being unaware or for teaching or, them learned behavior in some cases right. encouraging right. right in some cases right. encouraging um I, I don't know how often those get resolved in favor of the suing parents I, I don't you know i don't have a handle on where those end up but that seems to me a similar kind of 
legal logic. Right. Um, what did we work out today? That We worked out that eye to genitals is the appropriate age, is the appropriate sort of end point of when you can stop showering with your kids. Right. When they are eye to genitals. Right. We've also worked out The closest that we get to an objective rule. I think it's pretty good. We've also worked out that your peeing in the shower is okay, but or, or, or peeing in the shower is not okay, but but blowing your nose in the shower is 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 okay. That's that's inconsistent. Right. Your logic falls apart there. We've also worked out that apparently everybody's million dollar idea revolves around medicine. Well, yeah. Health. I've also worked out that I do know something about science. I know about antimicrobial technology without even knowing that I knew what it was. It exists. All right, Chris Salcedo's coming up next. Thanks for hanging out with us on Cane and Cup this Saturday morning. You're listening to Cane and Cup, part of the next generation of talk radio on the Blaze Radio Network.